Part Four of the Aliens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Aliens by Murray Leinster. Part Four. They heard the skipper's grunt as they hurried through the door. A moment later, the ship's normal gravity returned, also through the plumy generator. Up was up again, and down was down, and the corridors and cabins of the Nicola were brightly illuminated. Had the ship been other than an engineless wreck, falling through a hundred and fifty million miles of emptiness into the flaming photosphere of a sun, everything would have seemed quite normal, including the errand Baird and Diane were upon, and the fact that they held hands self-consciously as they went about it. They skirted the bulkhead of the main air-tank. They headed along the broader corridor, which went past the indented inner door of the airlock. They had reached that indentation when Baird saw that the inner airlock door was closing. He saw a human pressure suit past its edge. He saw the corner of some object that had been put down on the airlock floor. Baird shouted and rushed toward the lock. He seized the inner handle and tried to force open the door again so that no one inside it could emerge into the emptiness without. He failed. He wrenched frantically at the control of the outer door. It suddenly swung freely. The outer door had been put on manual. It could be, and was being, opened from inside. "'Tell the skipper!' raged Baird. "'Tain's taking something out!' He tore open a pressure suit cupboard in the wall beside the locked door. "'He'll make the plumies think it's a return gift for the generator!' He eeled into the pressure suit and zipped it up to his neck. "'The man's crazy. He thinks we can take their ship and stay alive for a while. Damn it, our air would ruin half their equipment. Tell the skipper to send help!' He wrenched at the door again, jamming down his helmet with one hand, and this time the control worked. Taine most probably had forgotten that the inner control was disengaged only when the manual was actively in use. Diane raced away, panting. Baird swore bitterly at the slowness of the outer door's closing. He was tearing at the inner door long before it could be opened. He flung himself in and dragged it shut and struck the emergency air release which bled the airlock into space for speed of operation. He thrust out the outer door and plunged through. His momentum carried him almost too far. He fell, and only the magnetic soles of his shoes enabled him to check himself. He was in that singular valley between the two ships where their hulls were impregnably welded fast. Round-hulled plumie ship and ganoid-shaped Nicola, they stuck immovably together as if they had been that way since time began. Where the sky appeared above Baird's head, the stars moved in stately procession along the valley roof. He heard a metallic rapping through the fabric of his space armour. Then sunlight glittered, and the valley filled with a fierce glare, and a man in a human spacesuit stood on the Nicholas plating opposite the plumy airlock. He held a bulky object under his arm. With his other gauntlet he rapped again. "'You fool!' shouted Baird. "'Stop that! We couldn't use their ship anyhow!' His space phone had turned on with the air supply. Taine's voice snarled. "'We'll try. You keep back. They're not human!' but Baird ran toward him. The sensation of running upon magnetic-soled shoes was unearthly. It was like trying to run on flypaper or birdlime. But in addition there was no gravity here, and no sense of balance, and there was the feeling of perpetual fall. There could be no science nor any skill in an encounter under such conditions. Baird partly ran and partly staggered and partly skated to where Taine faced him, snarling. He threw himself at the other man, and then the sun vanished behind the bronze ship's hull, and only stars moved visibly in all the universe. But the sound of his impact was loud in Baird's ears inside the suit. There was a slightly different sound when his armour struck Taine's, and when it struck the heavier metal of the two ships. 
He fought, but the suits were intended to be defence against greater stresses than human blows could offer. In the darkness it was like two blindfolded men fighting each other while encased in pillows. Then the sun returned, floating sedately above the valley, and Baird could see his enemy. He saw, too, that the plumy airlock was now open, and that a small, erect, and somehow jaunty figure in golden space armour stood in the opening, and watched gravely as the two men fought. Taine cursed, panting with hysterical hate. He flung himself at Baird, and Baird toppled because he'd put one foot past the welded boundary between the Nicholas cobalt steel and the plumy ship's bronze. One foot held to nothing. And that was a ghastly sensation, because if Taine only rugged his other foot free and heaved, why then Baird would go floating away from the rotating, now twin ships, floating further and further away forever. But darkness fell, and he scrambled back to the Nicholas Hull, as a disorderly parade of stars went by above him. He pantingly waited fresh attack. He felt something, and it was the object Taine had meant to offer as a return present to the plumies. It was unquestionably explosive. Either booby-trapped, or time to explode inside the plumy ship. Now it rocked gently, gripped by the magnetism of the steel. The sun appeared again, and Taine was yards away, crawling and fumbling for Baird. Then he saw him, and rose and rushed, and the clankings of his shoe-soles were loud. Baird flung himself at Taine in a savage tackle. He struck Taine's legs a glancing blow, and the cobalt steel held his armour fast. But Taine careened and bounced against the round bronze wall of the plumie, and bounced again. Then he screamed, because he went floating slowly out to emptiness, his arms and legs jerking spasmodically while he shrieked. The plumie in the airlock stepped out. He trailed a cord behind him. He leapt briskly towards nothingness. There came quick darkness once more, and Baird struggled erect despite the adhesiveness of the Nicholas hull. When he was fully upright, sick with horror at what had come about, there was sunlight yet again, and men were coming out of the Nicholas airlock, and the plumie, who had leapt for space, was pulling himself back to his own ship again. He had a loop of the cord twisted around Taine's leg. But Taine screamed and screamed inside his spacesuit. It was odd that one could recognize the skipper even inside space armor. But Baird felt sick. He saw Taine received, still screaming, and carried into the lock. The skipper growled an infuriated demand for details. His space phone had come on, too, when the air supply began. Baird explained, his teeth chattering. "'Ha!' grunted the skipper. "'Tane was a mistake. He shouldn't ever have left ground. When a man's potty in one fashion, there'll be cracks in him all over. What's this?' The plumie in the golden armour very soberly offered the skipper the object Tane had meant to introduce into the plumie's ship. Baird said desperately that he'd fought against it, because he believed it a booby-trap to kill the plumies, so men could take their ship and fill it with air and cut it free, and then make a landing somewhere. "'Damned foolishness!' rumbled the skipper. "'Their ship had begin to crumble with our air in it. If it held to a landing—' Then he considered the object he'd accepted from the plumie. It could have been a rocket warhead enclosed in some container that would detonate it if opened. Or there might be a timing device.' The skipper grunted. He heaved it skyward. The misshapen object went floating away toward emptiness. Sunlight smote harshly upon it. "'Don't want it back in the Nicola,' growled the skipper. "'But just to make sure—' He fumbled a hand-weapon out of his belt. He raised it, and it spurted flame—very tiny blue-white sparks, each one indicating a pellet of metal flung away at high velocity. 
One of them struck the shining, retreating container. It exploded with a monstrous, soundless violence. It had been a rocket's warhead. There could have been only one reason for it to be introduced into a plumy ship. Baird ceased to be shaky. Instead, he was ashamed. The skipper growled inarticulately. He looked at the plumie, again standing in the golden ship's airlock. "'We'll go back, Mr. Baird. What you've done won't save our lives, and nobody will ever know you did it. But I think well of you. Come along.' This was at eleven hours, five minutes, ship time. A good half-hour later the skipper's voice bellowed from the speakers all over the Nicola. His heavy-jowled features stared doggedly out of screens wherever men were on duty or at ease. "'Hear this,' he said forbiddingly. "'We have checked our course and speed. We have verified that there is no possible jury-rig for our engines that could get us into any sort of orbit, let alone land us on the only planet in this system with air we could breathe. It is officially certain that in thirteen days, nine hours from now, the Nicola will be so close to the sun that her hull will melt down, which will be no loss to us, because we'll be dead then, still going on into the sun to be vaporized with the ship.' There's nothing to be done about it. We can do nothing to save our own lives. He glared out of each and every one of the screens, wherever there were men to see him. But, he rumbled, the plumies can get away if we help them. They have no cutting torches. We have. We can cut their ship free. They can repair their drive, but it's most likely it'll operate perfectly when they're a mile from the Nicholas magnetic field. They can't help us, but we can help them. And sooner or later some plumie ship is going to encounter some other human ship. If we cut these plumies loose, they'll report what we did. When they meet other men, they'll be cagey, because they'll remember Tane, but they'll know they can make friends, because we did them a favour when we'd nothing to gain by it. I can offer no reward, but I ask for volunteers to go outside and cut the plumie ship loose, so the plumies can go home in safety instead of on into the sun with us. He glared, and cut off the image. Diane held tightly to Baird's hand in the radar room. He said evenly, "'There'll be volunteers. The plumies are pretty sporting characters, putting up a fight with an unarmed ship and so on. If there aren't enough other volunteers, the skipper and I will cut them free by ourselves.' Diane said, dry-throated, "'I'll help, so I can be with you. We've got so little time.' "'I'll ask the skipper as soon as the plumie ship's free.' "'Yes,' said Diane and she pressed her face against his shoulder and wept. This was at zero one hours, twenty minutes ship time. At zero three hours even, there was peculiar activity in the valley between the welded ships. There were men in space armour working cutting torches, where for twenty feet the two ships were solidly attached. Blue-white flames bored savagely into solid metal, and melted copper gave off strangely coloured clouds of vapour, which emptiness whisked away to nothing, and molten iron and cobalt made equally lurid clouds of other colours. There were plumies in the airlock, watching. At zero three hours, forty minutes ship time, all the men but one drew back. They went inside the Nicola. Only one man remained, cutting at the last sliver of metal that held the two ships together. It parted. The plumie ship swept swiftly away, moved by the centrifugal force of the rotary motion the joined vessels had possessed. It dwindled and dwindled. It was half a mile away, a mile. The last man on the outside of the Nicholas hull thriftily brought his torch to the airlock and came in. Suddenly the distant golden hull came to life. It steadied. It ceased to spin, however slowly. It darted ahead. It checked. It swung to the right and left and up and down. It was alive again. 
In the radar room, Diane walked into Baird's arms and said shakily, "'Now we—we have almost fourteen days.' "'Wait,' he commanded. "'When the Plumies understood what we were doing and why, they drew diagrams. They hadn't thought of cutting free out in space without the spinning saws they used to cut bronze with. But they asked for a scanner and a screen. They checked on its use. I want to see.' He flipped on the screen and there was instantly a plumie looking eagerly out of it, for some sign of communication established. There were soprano sounds, and he waved a hand for attention. Then he zestfully held up one diagram after another. Baird drew a deep breath, a very deep breath. He pressed the navigation-room call. The skipper looked dourly at him. "'Well?' said the skipper forbiddingly. "'Sir,' said Baird, very quietly indeed, the plumies are talking by diagram over the communicator set we gave them. Their drive works. They're as well off as they ever were. And they've been modifying their tractor beams, stepping them up to higher power. "'What of it?' demanded the skipper, rumbling. "'They believe,' said Baird, "'that they can handle the Nikola with their beefed-up tractor beams.' He wetted his lips. "'They're going to tow us to the oxygen planet ahead, sir. They're going to set us down on it.' They'll help us find the metals we need to build the tools to repair the Nicola, sir. You see the reasoning, sir. We turned them loose to improve the chance of friendly contact when another human ship runs into them. They want us to carry back, to be proof that plumies and men can be friends. It seems that they like us, sir. He stopped for a moment. Then he went on reasonably. And besides that, it'll be one hell of a fine business proposition— we never bother with hydrogen-methane planets. They've minerals and chemicals we haven't got, but even the stones of a methane-hydrogen planet are ready to combine with the oxygen we need to breathe. We can't carry or keep enough oxygen for real work. The same thing's true with them on an oxygen planet. We can't work on each other's planets, but we can do fine business in each other's minerals and chemicals from those planets. I've got a feeling, sir, that the Plumie Cairns are location notices— "'Markers set up over ore deposits they can find, but can't hope to work. "'Yet they claim against the day when their scientists find a way to make them worth owning. "'I'll be willing to bet, sir, that if we explored hydrogen planets as thoroughly as oxygen ones, "'we'd find cairns on their type planets that they haven't colonised yet.' "'The skipper stared. His mouth dropped open. "'And I think, sir,' said Baird, "'that until they detected us they thought they were the only intelligent race in the galaxy.' They were upset to discover suddenly that they were not, and at first they'd no idea what we'd be like. But I'm guessing now, sir, that they're figuring on what chemicals and ores to start swapping with us. Then he added, When you think of it, sir, probably the first metal they ever used was aluminium, where our ancestors used copper, and they had a beryllium age next instead of iron. And right now, sir, it's probably as expensive for them to refine iron as it is for us to handle titanium and beryllium and osmium, which are duck soup for them. Our two cultures ought to thrive as long as we're friends, sir. They know it already, and we'll find it out in a hurry. The skipper's mouth moved. It closed and then dropped open again. The search for the plumies had been made because it looked like they had to be fought— but Baird had just pointed out some extremely common-sense items which changed the situation entirely, and there was evidence that the Plumies saw the situation the new way. The skipper felt such enormous relief that his manner changed. He displayed what was almost effusive cordiality for the skipper. He cleared his throat. "'Hm, ha, very good, Mr. Baird,' he said formidably. 
"'And, of course, with time and air and metals we can rebuild our drive. "'For that matter, we could rebuild the Nicola. "'I'll notify the ship's company, Mr. Baird. Very good.' "'He moved to use another microphone. "'Then he checked himself. "'Your expression is odd, Mr. Baird. Did you wish to say something more?' "'Yes, sir,' said Baird. He held Diane's hand fast. "'It'll be months before we get back to port, sir, and it's normally against regulations, but under the circumstances. Would you mind, as skipper, marrying Lieutenant Holt and me?' The skipper snorted. Then he said, almost, almost amiably, mm, "'You've both done very well, Mr. Baird. Yes, come to the navigation room and we'll get it over with. Say, ten minutes from now.' Baird grinned at Diane. Her eyes shone a little. This was at zero four hours, ten minutes ship time. It was exactly twelve hours since the alarm bell rang. End of part four. This is also the end of the Aliens by Murray Leinster.